TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm here, And I'm Charlotte. Hey, Charlotte Howard. It's great to have you, Charlotte. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And I guess the three of us are paying some attention to earnings announcements. Is that a big thing for you? Do you take a lot of time following companies? Yeah, I think that there's always a tendency among journalists at The Economist, where I work, and elsewhere to try to make big stories out of a given earnings season, try to see what grabs you. <laughs> okay. yep. But I'm looking forward to today because we're going to talk not just about the broader economy and what generalized earnings mean, but about specific companies, which I think are really interesting. The ones that we've chosen span all different sectors, and each of them helps to illuminate the broader economic picture in a slightly different way. So I'm looking forward to getting into it with you both. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Let's do it. So Charlotte, what do you have for us? So I'm cheating a little bit. You asked me to come up with two companies, and I'm instead offering you a pair of companies and a third company. Ooh, you excel. <laughs> it's not cheating. She's a rate buster, for sure, yeah. <laughs> ExxonMobil and Chevron, they're certainly really interesting companies for a few reasons. One is just oil companies in general. There was a really long period over the past decade where they underperformed the S&P by a lot. They Mm -hmm. were among the worst and often the worst performing sector within the S&P. And then in the past two years, you saw this extraordinary outperformance. Mm -hmm. Last year, the oil companies in the S&P 500 rose by nearly 60% compared with a drop of 19% in the broader S&P. And so the question is really how long this can last for oil companies, given that we're in an environment in which everyone kind of agrees that long-term demand is not as stable as it used to be. And the question is how companies evolve in that environment, whether they evolve, how they make a strategy that rewards investors, certainly in the short term and in the long term. And what you saw with ExxonMobil and Chevron this quarter is that there were concerns that in a slowing economy, you would 
begin to see their performance lag a bit. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. instead, both outperformed analyst expectations. Exxon had a record first quarter profit that follows record annual profits last year. Mm -hmm. And they have a ton of cash. And so the question is what they will do with it. And in a prior era, you might have seen a company like ExxonMobil and indeed ExxonMobil itself invest far and wide around the world in all kinds of places where they wanted to build up their oil reserves. And instead, what you've seen with these companies is really doubling down in safe places, places like the Permian Basin mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Texas. So Exxon last year sold a lot of its holdings in regions that euphemistically in the industry they called complex jurisdictions. So places like (laughs) Iraq, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, it's investing a lot in safer places in Texas, but also Guyana, but really big American play. And the rumor is not about them buying a big oil field somewhere else, but instead maybe buying Pioneer, which is a huge American fracker. Mm -hmm, So I mm -hmm. think it points a bit to how oil companies have changed in recent years. Yeah. The other change that I find fascinating, because the core of their operations is now so profitable, it gives you a little bit of pause thinking about investments in renewables. Remember how many of the oil companies now have scaled back? And in part, it's just compared to the profitability of gas and oil, nothing looks like it it can really compare. So even if it were right to say longer term, you should be thinking about renewables and you should be investing in renewables. Right now, I think the financial logic at these oil prices, at least, is that the core of your business is really your best opportunity. And maybe it's best left to other companies to explore the renewable space. Yeah. I have to say, I, I love this story too, for a couple of reasons you highlighted, Charlotte. You know, the first is, It is really a story, I think, about managerial discipline. The reason they lagged so far for that whole decade was people viewed them as undisciplined on allocating capital and investing, and they have gotten the religion in a big way. The second point, I think, is exactly right. What are they going to do with it? And they will still pay out huge chunks of it. And the other interesting development in oil and gas is they've pioneered the use of variable dividends. So Mm -hmm. they now are doing things where they basically just pay out based on the price of oil. And they just pay out a fraction of earnings, almost in a mechanical way, which is super interesting. And the final thing, M&A, which is not really new capacity or new exploration, but kind of consolidation is a big part of the play. It'll be interesting to see if big oil can really succeed in pushing that envelope under the current regime, which I think is what they're going to try to do. My view is that they will succeed if they want to do it. You have a really fractured environment, amazingly, still in places like the Permian Basin. And the reason why companies get so interested and focused on the Permian is that it just has layers of layers of oil on top of each other. I think about it kind of like a that one of those desserts that has so many layers. <laughs> yeah. And so it's all about having the best assets in the Permian, given that it is becoming a more mature basin. And drilling as efficiently as possible in these environments. And so there actually is room for more consolidation. 
Occidental made a big bet in buying Anadarko a few years ago. They were punished initially and then rewarded enormously afterwards. Yeah. So what you're now seeing is the oil industry kind of growing up in a way, which sounds strange for a more than century old group of businesses, but that they're trying to consolidate. They're trying to be disciplined in their capital allocation. They're trying to go after the cheapest and most reliable barrels. And that is a bet that Exxon thinks will be resilient. Yeah. No matter what happens with the speed of the energy transition, they want to be able to stick around for longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually the final piece of this, which your geography point highlights, Charlotte, which is we don't talk enough about this, but the remarkable change in the role of the U.S. in the energy market as now a dominant provider, which makes so many other things a dominant production location. The U.S. becomes a dominant production location for so many other things in that process. And that is really a remarkable story over the last decade. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Okay, so where are you going to take us, Felix, from oil and gas to what? Maybe not a huge distance in some sense, because it's still energy consumption related, but completely different when it comes to the visibility of the company. I wanted to talk a little bit about AutoZone. It's one of these companies we never talk about. In <laughs> fact, even if you Google them, basically there's nothing. No one follows them. The Wall Street Journal never reports about them. I looked in the New York Times. I think the last reports were in 2019 or so. It's just a company where the universe seems to have decided they are utterly uninteresting to talk about. I think part <laughs> of the reason is that the only thing people feel they need to know about AutoZone is the jingle. Yeah. <laughs> the tagline is, get in the zone, yeah. AutoZone. Yeah. I won't do yes, it that's the right. full theatrical delivery, but everybody knows yeah. that. I think it also epitomizes our willingness as a podcast to talk about the thing that no one else wants to talk about, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So go ahead, AutoZone. But it's actually quite an interesting and an optimistic story. So the first thing that you will notice is they have very good profitability. Their return on invested capital is in the 30% or so at a cost of capital of about 6%. They're growing slowly but steadily. And, you know, in the last five years, their share price tripled when markets went up maybe by 50 or 60% or so. So it's really a remarkable financial play that no one really pays attention to. And the question is, this kind of performance that they've shown in the last couple of quarters, is that a story that will continue? And there's a number of reasons to be skeptical and there's a number of reasons to be more optimistic. The reason to be skeptical is that they benefit from the high car prices. Mm -hmm. So obviously when car prices are high, people hold on to their vehicles for a longer period of time. There's sort of a sweet spot for them when People really go out and they buy auto parts. It's roughly around when your car is between 8 and 12 years old. And so as the fleet ages for macroeconomic reasons, their business picks up. So there's maybe an argument to say, well, car prices will eventually come down. They're roughly 25% up over pre-pandemic levels for new cars. They're almost a third up for used cars. And eventually that will, of course, go away. And maybe AutoZone performance will not be quite as good. But there are at least three reasons to think that they will do very well, at least over the next couple of years. The first one is they're hardly international. Mm -hmm. They have a very small Mexican and Brazilian business, but there's a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of room to consolidate that business and become a bigger player in Latin America. They have made an incredible 
incredible investment in serving not only individuals, but now also serving body shops and repair shops that need parts as well. The big investment there is related to the speed with which you can make deliveries. So they have now built an incredible supply chain that <laughs> sort of what they often emphasize is they will supply parts as quickly as you can order a pizza. So it's not days, it's within half an hour, within an hour when the repair shops need their parts. And that's about 25% of their business at this time. And there's a lot of room to grow. And then the last reason to be optimistic, and that has to do with serving now repair shops, is that they have increased the size of their stores because repair shops need many more different SKUs. And so they went from what they call a satellite store that has roughly 20,000 SKUs to now these mega centers, which have more than 100,000 SKUs. And that's incredibly important and has important economies of scale. And so there's lots of reasons to be optimistic and to follow the company, even though apparently other than on after hours, no one wants to talk about them. <laughs> I love this, Felix, in part because, as you mentioned, they've performed incredibly well over the last several years. But frankly, it's the kind of company that people don't talk about more generally, which is it's like a 50 billion market cap. So it's not small. Mm -hmm. And over the longer period, like 15 years, they have done remarkably well, like 15x. And so it is super unsexy, <laughs> as unsexy as it gets. And yet with these kinds of returns on capital, just generating massive value. Mm -hmm. I guess the other thing that I don't fully understand, Felix, is what happens in the EV world to a person like AutoZone? Now, maybe that's five years out until it impacts them, but do they have a play on EVs or is it an ICE play? So you're right. In part, that's one of the big longer term concerns. There are many parts that people buy. So think LEDs, think wipers, think all these components that, of course, don't change as much, yep. even if we transition towards electric vehicles. But you're generally right that an electric vehicle has fewer parts. It's less complicated mechanically. And so over the longer term, there is a question of how big that business can really be. I'm not sure that the big investments that they have made into delivering repair shops, into geographic expansion, whether that puts much of a limit. It seems many of these markets are so underpenetrated that maybe even with an overall smaller footprint, you still have quite nice growth opportunities. Hmm. It's an interesting opportunity then also in the labor market at HPS, there is a research effort that is called the Future of Work, and they paired up with the Burning Glass Institute to look at 200 companies and at the kind of jobs that they produce for people who don't have college degrees and how good they are at turning these typically entry-level positions in retail, how good these companies are at turning these positions into real career opportunities. And AutoZone did remarkably well on mm. many of those metrics. It's very open for people who don't have college degrees. It's much faster than in many other retail establishments to then rise up inside the organization. It's not surprisingly, not very well paid to begin with. That was one of the drawbacks. But in so many ways, when the initiative for the future of work looked at how do 
people's careers really play out over the longer term. One of the big insights was choosing the right company very early on. Yeah. In particular, if you don't have a college degree, seems to say so much about how far you can go. And on that metric also, AutoZone is just a really important player for many people. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So Mihir, what did you bring? Well, I want to outdo you on the obscurity metric <laughs> okay. and talk about a little company called Apple. <laughs> I think things have just gotten completely fascinating with Apple. So just a couple of data points here. So their market cap is now $2.8 trillion. That constitutes about 8% of the S&P 500. I know. The numbers are so large, it's hard to get your arms around. So for example, the Russell 2000, which is an index of small cap stocks, Apple has the same market capitalization as the Russell 2000 at this point. It's just an asset without compare in many ways. Mm -hmm. So as Apple goes, so goes the market. And watching what's happened recently is super interesting. The first thing to say is they announced, and of course, the market loved it. It was up like 5%. And you kind of ask yourself why. And there's a couple of things to think about, which I think are more broadly representative of what's going on in the world. So first, they beat expectations. Now, Apple is just a master of managing expectations, (laughs) but that is something that has happened more generally, which is everybody seems to have managed expectations down so well for the first (laughs) quarter that people beat (laughs) in the same way, even though the results are not great. The second reason why I think it's such a representative of what's going on is in the last three months, we've just seen this remarkable consolidation around mega cap technology stocks. So actually the markets haven't been great, but Google, Meta, Microsoft, Apple have just rocketed and Apple is now at an all-time high. Well, what were the actual results? Well, then things get a little bit more complicated. (laughs) So revenues were down like 3%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You look under the hood, what do you see? Macs are down 30%. iPads are down 15%. Wearables are flat. And it's a little bit all about the iPhone, which is up like 2%. And then the other big surprise is that services, which of course is just this remarkable potential business, is up 5% year on year. So altogether, kind of a mediocre (laughs) set of numbers. And yet they are trading at 30 times their earnings. And yet they are $2.8 trillion worth of market cap. And I confess it's the first time that things have kind of, stopped making sense for me with Apple. Hmm. And at the same time, you can find amazing things. So for example, they're into the buy now, pay later space now. If you've seen the Apple savings accounts, they're spectacular. And what they're going to do in finance with just the Apple savings account is amazing. So I just can't quite make sense of what is happening here. And I just think it's such a large part of the market today and the economy today that what happens to it in the next couple of months is going to just matter enormously for the overall market. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard to overstate the impact of these enormous players on the broader market. Yeah. It was almost easy when everything was going up to obscure their power, but you really saw it when the tech companies started to falter at the end of 2021 into 2022, just what a big impact that would have on the broader S&P and on people's returns. So I absolutely think you're right to highlight it, Mihir. And it plays into some of these broader consumer trends that we're discussing. Yeah. I think there's two things to me that are really interesting within the tech world. Of course, Apple is now attractive because 
it's much less exposed to advertising compared to everyone else. And to the extent that we are concerned around when will advertising come back, how quick will the recovery be, is it sustainable longer term, privacy issues, and so on and so on. Being sort of the outsider, being not as much reliant on advertising as everyone else in tech, I think, is a real advantage now. And so if you're interested in tech and if you're worried about advertising, Apple is right there. Also, probably a little a broader tech story. My sense is that the layoffs indicate very similar to your story about the oil companies, Charlotte. They indicate some sort of discipline that comes to the sector. Some of it may be imagined, some of it's real. It's still a little hard to say because employment numbers are not actually all that much down. And there was this big boom in hiring people towards the end of the pandemic when everybody was nervous about not being able to attract enough talent. But still, I think there's a little bit more careful planning, thinking about the projects that you want to pursue. And again, there... Apple, relative to everyone else, is just relatively slim. Yes, there's the services business that could go in many different directions, but it's not the 5 million different initiatives and projects at Google. It's not a big push into the metaverse that now (laughs) seems to basically have faltered before it even really took root, what we have seen with Meta. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating about what you're saying in a way, Felix, is Everything's kind of relative. Yeah. There's such a flight to safety and a, such a flight to quality in somebody like Apple, yeah. where you're not really talking about the business anymore. It becomes a safe asset in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what it is. Yeah. Although the services business was supposed to be like this dynamo, it turns out they discussed advertising was not as strong as they thought and gaming was not as strong as they thought. Yeah. And by the way, globally, every region was down except maybe other emerging markets where actually they saw some strength, which also was kind of interesting to me. But it is something to really watch because all the big tech have become so large. But Apple in particular is now such a bellwether that when it stumbles, and of course it has to stumble at some point, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. The growth in markets such as India and Indonesia, I found to be really striking in their results. And in particular, India, they were talking about how they've opened their first Apple store there, their first retail store there. It seems to be a big market for growth. So that plays into, I think, a sometimes overlooked story in the business world, given how much we're focused on China and decoupling at the moment, but the real strong growth in India and what that means for multinational brands, including those that are reevaluating their footprint in that other giant Asian market. I think you're exactly right, Charlotte, which is other emerging markets too. Sometimes now there's like this other bucket, which nobody seems to want to talk about, but (laughs) actually is like turning out to be very resilient and super interesting. Turns out there are millions of millions of people in these other places. (laughs) Exactly. And then, of course, we're all waiting for the car. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You have to bring it back to AutoZone, Felix, right? (laughs) Yes. The big Apple AutoZone tie-up. The merger, the tie-up, exactly. Support for the show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization 
that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist education only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash after hours, and enter my promo code after hours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash after hours and use promo code after hours at registration. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash. After Hours to get 15% off your first order when you use After Hours at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/afterhours and use the code afterhours at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Mihir, what else do you have for us? Well, the really fun part about watching these companies at this juncture is the economy is so fundamentally confusing right now that listening to some of these company reports is a way to gain some clarity. Because as you know, the macro scene is so confusing. Labor market is just remarkably tight. Wages are just remarkably robust. And yet we worry about the effects of interest rate increases and regional bank crises and all these things. So Watching company reports is a way to try to get some clarity. And I'm here to tell you that there's no clarity. <laughs> it is just remarkable how confusing all these reports were about the state of the American consumer. Yeah, And you see just remarkably different things. So I'll highlight a couple. So UPS really has their finger on the pulse of the economy, but also the consumer. And they reported, and it was a big disappointment. And the CEO, Carol Tomey, who's one of the best CEOs out there, made a point of saying... January was above forecast, February was at forecast, and March was a surprisingly bad month for us. So if you're looking for the leading edge of a consumer-driven recession, she's pretty much shouting it from the rooftop, the consumer is weakening. Small problem, you go elsewhere and you'll find things that say the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. So P&G reports, and they're like, raising prices by 10% and the consumer is strong and Kellogg's is raising prices by 19% and like taking 3% volume declines and saying consumers resilient Uber, there's no sign of a consumer slowdown. And so there is just this persistent confusion about what is going on with the consumer. And I think when we see these global logistics companies report, I always feel like that's very wide and deep in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to see in the next couple of months is who was right. Now, you might remember last year, FedEx did something similar. In the middle of the year, FedEx came out and said, it's a recession. 
And then everyone was like, no, it's not. And so if you followed the <laughs> logistics companies, you got it wrong. And we're going to see another trial of that now yeah. with UPS because UPS yeah. has kind of said it's happening and everyone else has said it's not. So that to me, I think is going to be super fascinating to watch. Yeah, I find the data on consumer sentiment always somewhat interesting and a little confusing, particularly right now. I mean, you've had different surveys that show consumers intend to save more and intend to spend less, but that's not really playing out enormously in the data, at least that I've seen. But this goes back to our early conversation. It's interesting to see how companies benefit from shifts in consumers' behavior. So AutoZone being a prime example. Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. like they stop spending entirely. They might just spend on different types of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the last point I'd make on the consumer companies that you mentioned, Mahir, is that there was a really long time when consumer packaged good companies were jacking up their prices to account for higher input costs. You didn't see declining profits. There's always this question of how long this is going to last. Yeah. Are consumers going to push back? Can companies keep on protecting their margins by raising prices? And it sounds like they can. There's no end to this. What do you guys think? <laughs> Maybe what's really unusual is if, in fact, it's true that we will enter a recession later this year, the job market is just extraordinarily unusual. I can't really think of another period that led up to a recession where you have such resilience in the job market. And then I think that creates this confusing picture around consumer expenditures because how do I think about my personal finances? Yes, I pay a little bit of attention to is there a recession? Are people really nervous? Is my mortgage perhaps more expensive? But first and foremost, I'm looking on the income side. And for most people, most of the time, there's plenty of jobs. The ability, for instance, of the economy to absorb all the tech people, a little bit the way we talked about on the show a long time ago, that mm -hmm. this transition in tech where now lots and lots of core tech workers end up in other companies that have technological needs as well, but we don't really count them as technology companies. I think that has worked out remarkably well, where you not so much reliant on finding something in a similar company if, say, tech is relatively weak. And it just creates this resilience in the job market that I think then, in some sense, gives us this confusing picture about the state of the economy and the minds of the consumer. Yeah, it is really confusing. I think part of the explanation, Charlotte, to your point, is a little bit of the whipsawing between goods and services and different kinds of goods and people buying a lot of PCs and then not buying PCs. And you can get very confusing data in that way because the economy is whipsawing between different consumption decisions by consumers. But I have to say, it does feel to me like something is a little bit different when UPS says that. And it's such a big statement. But we'll have to see. You're absolutely right, Felix. There's lots of reasons to be super confident about the world. <laughs> and then yet when these things happen, it does make you wonder how long it can go on for. Yeah. Hmm. All right, good. Charlotte, what did you got? I wanted to talk a bit about Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to look at for a few reasons. One is that their cloud computing business is growing more slowly than it was, which is a problem for them mm -hmm. as companies want to spend less on cloud computing as their customers try to cut back. But there are two big things that they sit at the center of, which are fascinating, I think, not just for Microsoft investors, but for anyone interested in bigger trends in tech. 
And one is that Microsoft owns 49% of the company that owns ChatGPT. And it has been really aggressive in announcing plans to roll out ChatGPT across its products. So you think about ChatGPT being integrated into Excel or Outlook. Microsoft very much wants to be ahead of its competitors here. And I think that it will perhaps change how so many people around the world work and potentially may propel further growth at Microsoft, though exactly how that will play out is unclear. The other really big thing that Microsoft at the moment is sitting at the center of is some of this antitrust drama that continues. So Microsoft wanted to buy Activision. It was a huge deal, just shy of $70 billion. And Britain's competition folks wanted to make a point here, it seemed. They were talking about the risk of crowding out competition in cloud-based video games, which is kind of a funny thing to do because there's not a huge market yet. It's not clear at all that cloud-based video games are the future of gaming. Microsoft really wants Activision to help them with mobile gaming and help grow the business more broadly. But in some ways, it was Britain trying to make a point, I think. Many critics noted that it was sort of a weird one to block, but it just shows how aggressive competition regulators have become. And Microsoft is going to challenge that. They're going to try to appeal that decision, but it may be that they lose. Do you guys think it was more about signaling? What do you make of the Activision problem in Britain? I do think it's telling that Microsoft was willing to make some commitment to making popular games available on other platforms, but the commitments are quite limited. They're limited to existing games that have popularity and they're limited in time also. So if I'm the regulator, I'm looking at this and I fear that we might get a really powerful company that controls much of the distribution of games and some games with all the shenanigans that we see when Amazon favors its own products in the Amazon marketplace. Mm -hmm. I can see a rationale why you want to be careful here in particular because it's clear that gaming will be a really big business and will continue to grow. It is one of the fastest growing forms of entertainment and we don't quite know how concentrated it's going to be. I think it's less of an issue in, say, music or other forms of entertainment where people consume many different products. Gaming is just not like that. It's much more like a winner-take-all kind of dynamic where at any one point in time, there's a relatively limited number of games that are just the most popular ones, the ones that people are really invested in. And as a result, the opportunity for the misuse of market power, I think, are much greater in gaming than in other forms of entertainment. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Microsoft, Charlotte, because in a way, it is a company where you can see the whole economy and all the big issues that we face today. <laughs> so on antitrust, you see one of the largest antitrust questions we have. It's kind of that logic, which is preemptive and worried about the future. And I think that's what we're seeing play out, the power of that idea all around the world. But the other two things you highlighted are also, I think, amazing about Microsoft. So first, I don't know how many times he said AI on that call. Yeah. It was like 50 times. <laughs> yes. And I think that was the game, the whole earnings season, which is anybody who can say AI just says it as much as possible. And That's so he right. was manifesting that. <laughs> and then the big question that we face is because of the technology sector being so large, if tech spend slows down, and there are lots of signs that it has, then it has broad implications for the economy and the market. 
Now you might say, well, yeah, but cloud slowed down, but it's still at Microsoft growing in the high teens. And so is that so bad? And the answer is maybe not. But if Microsoft's growing in the high teens and they're like world-class, there's a lot of technology companies that are going to falter and mm -hmm. who are going to see that deceleration that is happening with Microsoft. So in all those ways, Microsoft is kind of becoming the company to watch if you want to understand the world in a way that Apple isn't really, or Google isn't, or any of these other companies, because they capture PC demand, they capture the consumer, they capture the global kind of IT spend. And now they're kind of in the regulatory crosshairs. So it's a super interesting one to watch. I think when Activision was announced, I thought it was a mistake and I still kind of do. And so I think the good news here is maybe they can walk away and declare victory. Mm -hmm. I was never really sure that it made sense as a capital allocation play. By the way, I will mention the one company that mentioned AI a lot and got punished for it is also super interesting, which is Chegg, mm. which is maybe a company you haven't heard of. Hmm. But I've often thought that education is going to be the place where we see AI play out first. And they basically have a high-end tutoring educational service subscription business. And they just mentioned that after ChatGPT was released and widely available, that they saw a decline in their subscriptions mm -hmm. and the stock cratered 50%. Hmm. And so it turns out mentioning AI a lot on your call can have like a two-sided. <laughs> Very wild consequences. <laughs> yes. Very wild yeah. consequences. There's also some level of confusion I find about is AI going to be really important for the economy as a whole or does it confer competitive advantage to any one individual company? I was quite encouraged by seeing we already have aggregators where you have a particular query and then you have 52 different AI providers who will answer your query and you pick the program that does the best job or you think has the best training opportunity. So what's unclear, I think, at this moment in time is even if you believe that generative AI is a really big story, will it ultimately confer competitive advantage to anyone. Exactly. That's much harder to see at this point. And when you mention it 47 times on your call, you're trying to say that it does. You're <laughs> yes. implicitly saying we're the winner and we're way ahead. But I think you're exactly right, Felix. The question is, for how long and does it last? Yeah. The level of alarmism and excitement on this topic is so wildly extreme. Yes. And I know we're supposed to save our recommendations for the end, but I will say we at The Economist had a cover a few weeks ago on AI that I think without bias is the single best thing to read if you really want to understand generative AI, both how it works and its broader implications. So I would direct yeah. your listeners there. It also happened to have a great cover. It was an A and an I with a halo over the A and a devil's tail on the I <laughs> nice. to show the hopes and fears <laughs> yes. of this. Wait, so Charlotte, after protesting about all the hype on AI, did you just engage in some hype about AI and your cover? No, no, I'm just engaging <laughs> in hype about The Economist. There you Definitely go. no hype on AI. <laughs> oh, good. good. Actual good. intelligence, not artificial <laughs> intelligence. Ouch. <laughs> All right. Felix, what do you have? I wanted to talk a little bit about Pinduoduo, the Chinese e-commerce company, or now that I guess being Chinese has fallen out of fashion in the United States. So they renamed themselves PDD sometime in February. And it's a really remarkable story that also sheds light on something that is more interesting economy-wide. 
four out of the five most popular applications just by the number of downloads are now Chinese applications. And mm. one of the apps that PDD has developed, Timu, which is sort of a bargain hunting e-commerce kind of company, is among one of those. And I think it says at least three things about the state of the economy that are really interesting to me. The first is this difference of where China's economy is and where our economy is. China's economy still fairly slow to recover from the general lockdown, the strict COVID policies. And I think as a result of inflation, we have a whole segment of consumers who are incredibly price sensitive. And so then seeing an app like Timu, the $10 t-shirt, the whatever you can imagine at incredibly low prices. The second thing that it speaks to is just how incredibly competitive e-commerce is in China. So for quite some time, it seemed that it would basically be a game between the big two, between Alibaba and JD.com. And then really out of nowhere, PDD developed an incredibly powerful application. It was coupled with sort of a group pieing mode where you would always see two prices on PDD. One is the price if only you buy, and one is the lower price that you see if you and a group of friends buy. And that was sort of an internal marketing machine that just had incredible power because then people would send each other links for products that they liked in the hope that many of their friends or many of their colleagues would buy. So I think this incredible intense competition between the e-commerce player just makes them really fabulous at what they do. And then the third thing that I'll just mention quickly Timu breaks the mold in that you get incredible prices, but you have to wait. So they generally promise we will deliver in 10, 11 days or so. You get a $5 discount if they miss that window. Hmm. And it turns out people are not as time sensitive as I think most of us would have thought. Hmm. That was maybe sort of a wrong conclusion from the pandemic when people were nervous about getting things in the first place. And so speed really mattered. And it was a really remarkable investment in next day delivery, in next hour delivery, in next minute delivery. And now it turns out a pretty significant fraction of consumers are perfectly happy to wait. Hmm. So I have a few responses to that. One is that I fall in the category of consumers that does need it right away. It occurs to me late that I need something and then I do need it instantly. I needed something for my son's baseball game. I didn't have it. The game was the next day. I was very grateful for the last mile. You infrastructure. are not a Timu customer for many reasons. I am not reasons, a Timu actually. customer. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I was interested in Timu is really because of its parent company, PDD Holdings. And they recently announced a move from China to Dublin. And there are many companies, of course, that are trying to take advantage of Ireland's low corporate tax rate. We've seen this repeatedly. But one of the things that is particular to Chinese companies is they're trying to figure out how to manage growing scrutiny from American regulators. And one way that they might go about doing this is with a change in location. So you saw ByteDance recently move its headquarters from Beijing to Singapore. Mm -hmm. And it's not an idle threat because there has been increased scrutiny from Washington, certainly 
of Chinese firms. You've seen this manifest in a variety of ways, including the SEC saying that more than 100 Chinese companies may be delisted in 2024 if they don't give audited financial information. You no longer have any state-owned Chinese companies on American exchanges, which is really a remarkable shift. I mean, you think about the Chinese state-backed airlines that were the last to leave American exchanges earlier this year. They'd been traded here since 1997. Yeah, yeah. And it was very telling that in the Chinese press, they then denied that they had just done that. And basically made it sound it was a move to be compliant with EU regulations, but it wouldn't mean that they would give up their headquarters. So sort of playing two sides, just like I think not calling the company Pintodo, but PDD is sort of a way to make it a little less Chinese and hopefully placate some China critics in the United States and in Europe. Yeah, I was kind of struck by the things you all have noticed as well. You began this, Felix, by saying being a Chinese company is not that popular in America, maybe. But it feels like these Chinese companies are trying to look less Chinese to the world. These are really remarkable moves. And presumably they were made with some set of acknowledgement by the government that it wouldn't be met with reprisal. And so it's really interesting to think over the last 20 years, corporations are no longer linked to any country in any meaningful way because they reincorporate where they're listed for jurisdictional and tax purposes. Mm -hmm. They increasingly split their top team across jurisdictions. So it feels like China's also now figuring out that you don't need to be a Chinese company. Just like American companies now can be domiciled in Bermuda and listed in New York and teams exist all over the world. And it seems like a part of that story. I think you're absolutely right, Felix, which is e-commerce in China just feels like it's so much better. And the puzzle in a way is why more of those habits have not migrated into US e-commerce companies, because there just seems like they're leaps ahead of what my e-commerce experience is. And so I think Timu is a fascinating example. Also, very purposefully headquartered in Boston, kind of has, again, American imprimatur to it. It'll be interesting to see if Timu can actually crack the U.S. market, and then maybe we'll start to see the mimicking of all these tools that you described. Mm -hmm. Okay, recommendations. Charlotte, what do you got? I am going to make a wholehearted endorsement of American Little League Baseball. <laughs> it is a great American institution, and... It can be for boys and girls, and it is so fantastic to see these little people trying so hard and working together. And unlike soccer, which everyone loves and puts their kids in little soccer leagues, you don't really need to know the rules in soccer. You can just run around like a swarm of bees, and <laughs> you can go pick flowers in the corner if you want. Baseball, you have to actually work together. If the ball goes to third base, where do you throw it? Yeah. <laughs> the first time my son played Little League, he tried to play every position in the outfield simultaneously. Oh. And learning how to work with other children and learning that most of the time you're going to strike out is a great thing for any human and particularly one who is a child. So I am going to use my time to endorse the institution of American Little League. Wow. Yeah. Felix, what do you have? Have you to watch The Diplomat, the Netflix show? I have. Did you love it? I kind of loved it and I kind of hated it. Oh, <laughs> why'd you hate it? Say more. No, no, you go first, Felix. Can you tell us why you loved it? So I think it was 
the first show that reminded me a little bit of The West Wing. Yeah. Where on the one hand, you see it's a drama and there are many things I'm sure that are completely exaggerated, but there's enough of a bigger theme that sort of make the show really interesting. And in the case of The Diplomat, it's this idea that part of what civil servants have to do is keep completely unpredictable politicians in check. Mm. And that this is actually probably a more important role than we ever get to see because it all happens behind the scenes. But it's imagined in this particular drama. Mm -hmm. And I really love that combination a little bit, the personal drama, the political drama, but also this bigger idea if you have politicians whose logic is, of course, re-election and whatever they can do, maybe sometimes reckless, maybe sometimes not so reckless, that's what they will endorse. Those are the activities that they will pursue. And then <laughs> the civil servants in the back, in this particular case, it's Carrie Russell who plays the American ambassador in the UK, who is desperately trying to undo some of the damage that might come from political action. I loved her in the role. I think she was spectacular. And the drama, I think, not so bad. Yeah. Did you see The Americans, Felix? Did you watch that series? Yes. That's also Carrie Russell. She does intensity and competence very well. In yes. this case, yeah. put to better use than when she's killing off people and the Americans, but she's very good. <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched the whole series of The Diplomat yet, but I am enjoying it. I kind of loved it and hated it in the sense that she is amazing. All the acting is amazing, actually. So Rory Kinnear is amazing. Yes. Michael McKean is great. It's all good. And of course, it's like glamorous and it's like London and Paris and DC and it's all like Netflixy. I loved all that stuff. I got to say, the whole thing is just so implausible to me that it made me pause in a moment. Like she's being groomed to be vice president. I don't know. I just lost the thread a little bit. So you have to lose reality a little bit. But if you're willing to do that, I think it is a great watch. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. What do you recommend me here? So it hasn't happened to me in a long time, but I recently have listened to the same album over and over and over and over again. Ooh. I feel like I'm a kid again who's found an album that is just like the greatest album ever. And I just heartily recommend it to you both, which is Brad Meldow is a jazz pianist arguably like the greatest jazz pianist there is around today. And he has a new album called Your Mother Should Know, which is exclusively covers of Beatles songs. Oh, which he has done throughout his career. Indeed. But now he's concentrated them in this album, oh, Your Mother Should Know. And I have to say, if somebody told me, oh yeah, there's like a jazz pianist who's like covering Beatles songs, I would have been like, that sounds really terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> this is spectacular. And he's covering songs that are not necessarily like the most common songs, but it is this combination of familiarity and innovation when you listen to those songs that is just as pleasurable an experience as can be. Because you hear that familiar thing that you know, oh yeah, uh -huh. I know that Beatles song, yeah. but then he goes in some crazy directions and you're like, that's fantastic. So I recommend heartily Brad Meldow's Your Mother Should Know. Wow. And I'm so happy that you recommend a recording that is not more than 20 years old. That's a remarkable <laughs> that moment. That feels like quite a backhanded compliment from Felix. Yes. So we'll leave well, it there. Well, but it is Beatles songs after all, Felix. Oh, so it's not a complete yes. departure. Right? <laughs> and this was it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.